Well, good afternoon. Hope you've had a good afternoon. It's kind of interesting how we use that expression. In a few months from now, we'll be saying good evening at the same time, but that's just kind of how it is. We're glad you're back with us this evening as we continue our chair series this evening. And we're going to look at, again, some topics we think will be very relevant and hopefully very helpful for us as we try to navigate through this life and figure out the things that God wants us to do. A little correction about this morning. As I began my lesson this morning, I talked about the song we, we just sang before I preached. And I was saying that would make a great summer series. And Jason reminded me it was last year. So <laughs> It was a great summer series. It so, was. Um, I'm old. Okay. <laughs> That's all I can explain. I'm old. I don't know. So those things happen. So we're back. This is part three of our summer chair series. And we're, we're looking at some things that we hope will be very helpful for you as we kind of look at some topics that are oftentimes kind of difficult and difficult to talk at home, difficult to get across to one another. Understand, parents, that your teenagers are here on the other side of the story. It's raw, it's unfiltered, and it's in your face. So it's important for us not to be afraid to wade out in the deep water and talk about some of these things because it's out there and people are talking about it. But what they say oftentimes is not the biblical view that we need to see and appreciate. Now we'll take us to what we're going to talk about this evening. You know, we, we talk about the worldview and the biblical view and they clash. They're not going the same direction and we're theme this summer series is, I know what the Bible says, but. And it's that but that makes people wonder. I know the Bible says this, but what about this? And what they try to do is blend what the Bible says with the current culture. And oftentimes, most times, those two simply do not fit together. So tonight, our topic is, I know what the Bible says, but can't I be spiritual without being religious? What that is, that's a common thought. I hear that a lot, especially among what they call the millennials today. It's the idea that I love God in my own way. And I don't need a church, and I don't need a book to define my faith. And my faith has no boundaries, and my faith has really no definitions. Now, on the surface, it sounds, man, that sounds really cool. That sounds just open and free and, and, and very fluid and, and sounds very exciting. But behind all this is I want a God that's defined by me. I want a God that allows me to do what I want to do. I don't want to be a part of accountability to any church. I don't want to be governed by any doctrine in any book. I want to simply do what I want to do. I love God, but I love him in my own way. And that's very, very common. A lot of the Hollywood set is into that kind of thinking today. And so that will take us to our lessons today and some of our questions. And so let's just begin with our very first question, and that is, why do we need the church? Uh, can't I follow God without a church? Let's go back in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, if you will. My knee-jerk reaction to that question is, at first, to try and express what the church means to Jesus. Because it is not my church, and it is not your church. It is what Jesus promised to build in Matthew 16, 18. 
prior to his death and his burial and his resurrection, he promised and in a sense drew his apostles into this grand idea, I am going to build my church and what I'm going to build, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. We know from passages like Ephesians chapter 1, you can begin reading with me in verse 20, this is what Jesus is the head of. In Ephesians 1 verse 20, Paul is describing what God has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, the Father, put all things under his feet, the feet of Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We could spend the rest of the night right there turning over in our minds what it means that the fullness of Christ is seen in his church. A few pages over in Ephesians chapter 5, we get a, a keen sense of what the church means to Jesus. In verse 25 of Ephesians 5, when husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We need to appreciate what the church means to Jesus. Now, hand in hand with that, I would suggest we need to be honest about the church in that the church is made up of people. Sometimes we disappoint each other. Sometimes we frustrate each other. And when we act as if we don't, when we act as if this is a, a perfect gathering of perfect people who are perfectly on a perfect pathway to a perfect destination without any hiccups along the way, I would suggest that we're doing more harm than good because our children and our grandchildren and our friends and family looking from the outside in, they know that we're not perfect, right? But that tension is not new. We didn't discover that in the 21st century. And we need to realize that God is calling us to be something, a part of something much larger than ourselves for our good. And it's not my prerogative or your prerogative to say, well, I want Jesus, I just don't want to be a part of what he built. I, I want a relationship with Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with his body. I, I want Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with his bride. No, this is an earthly, fleshy manifestation of the kingdom that we have sung about already. And we've sung 
There is room in the kingdom. There is work that we all can do. And we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit more about that. But God has given the church as a gift for our good. And, and when you have discussions with people, you can say the same words, but you're not using the same definition. So from a biblical perspective, the word church is saved people. Mm -hmm. So why do I need saved people? Well, either you're saved or you're not saved. To be saved means you're part of the church. And you're part of that fellowship of the saved. Now, what a lot of people mean is a local congregation. And a lot of people see no distinction between what's out there and what we read in the Bible. And what's out there is a lot of entertainment and fluff and junk. And why do you need that? I mean, you, you sit through there and there, there's nothing. There's nothing. For years and years... The Catholics did all their, all their services in Latin when nobody in the audience could speak Latin. Well, what value is that? What value, what purpose is that? So, so again, when somebody says, do I need the church? We've got to understand, what do you mean by that? Now, when we talk about the New Testament church, yes, you do. And we'll talk about that just a little bit more. Sure. So, pivoting from the church to God. Does my definition of God have to match your definition of God. And that, that usually is the breakdown of the conversation. You think you have all the truth, I have to agree with you, and that's the way it is. Let's turn your Bible to the book of Exodus, Exodus 32. And, and actually, our definition of God has to match the Bible. It's not that my definition of God matches your definition of God, matches this person. We have to match how God defines himself. So in Exodus 32, while Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments, Aaron was busy gathering gold from all the people to make golden calves. And in verse 4, he took this from their hand and fashioned it in the graving tool, made it into a molten calf, and they said, This is your God, O Israel. What did they do? They redefined God. They made up their own definition of God. And that gets us in trouble. When we start saying, My God, and I remember watching Oprah Winters one time, and she was talking about homosexuality and says, my God has no problem with that. That is true. Her God is not the God of the Bible. When we follow the God of the Bible, we've got to let him define himself. So now take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 1. 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I got that backwards. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Here, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the importance of revelation and inspiration. And starting with verse 11, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Stop there. Jim Buss back here. What's Jim Buss thinking right now? I can guess by the expression on his face, but you know what? I have no clue. I don't know. His dear wife, Pam, sitting right beside him, may say, well, I've been married to Jim a long time, and this is probably what he's thinking, but she doesn't know. Nobody knows what you're thinking but you. That's what this passage is saying. Who among men know the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. 
Now we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, so we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by, spiritual, by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. What he's saying there is nobody knows what God thinks. How many times do we hear that in religion? God likes this. How do you know? The only way you know is what's in, in the Bible. So when it comes to def definition of what God is, what God is like, your definition, my definition has to come from the Bible. Other than that, we're making our own idol. My God likes this. My God likes the Dodgers. My God likes chocolate. My God likes cats. Where do you get that from? The list of things Roger likes. You see? And we start building a theology around that. We're in trouble. So when it comes to who is God, your definition, my definition, everyone's definition must come from the Bible. Otherwise, we're making things up. And that gets us in trouble. So number three, and this is really the heart of what we're talking about tonight. Is there a difference from being spiritual and being religious? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 28 where we'll be in just a moment. When people ask me that question or are, are leaning in that direction, one of the first things that I try and get them to think about is where is that impulse even coming from? Why do you feel the need to be spiritual? I mean, why not just completely plunge yourself into the physical, whatever it is that you want to do? Certainly, there are people who do that. Again, that is not a, a new phenomenon. Hedonism has been around for a very, very long time where if it feels good, I'm just going to do it. And I'm not going to in any way take into account the inside or the, the spiritual side of man. But many people try that. And then end with, is that all there is? Isn't there something more? Particularly when life gets hard. When life begins to come to a close. And we begin perhaps for the first time in a long time grappling with big questions of purpose and existence. And, and how all of this is eventually going to end up. I would suggest that even the impulse to be spiritual comes from somewhere. And it is not our secular culture. The Bible gives us hints as to where, more than hints as to where that comes from. We know in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 when this wise man is searching in all sorts of different directions, he he. he enters into the discussion, the belief that God has put eternity into our hearts. Our hearts know deep down there's more than I can see with my physical eyes. We are created in God's image. But even as we grapple with that, there are things maybe that we don't really want. You know, who is to say that there is truth? 
with a capital T. If you were in our building blocks course of studies, Roger this morning talked to us about objective truth, some sort of a standard that is beyond ourselves. And if there is a standard, well, I'm either in line with that standard or I'm out of line with that standard. And the, the, the word that is used in Scripture is doctrine. And I'm not sure I'm interested in someone else telling me how to live. And then I hear Jesus described as Lord. And I'm interested in Jesus as a Savior, but I'm not sure I'm interested in having a Lord. And I like my weekends the way that they are. And so this idea of worship, or you used the word accountability earlier, I would suggest again we've got some tension there. Because we know when we are at the highest of highs that, is that all there is? But at the same time, all of this regulation stuff, boundary stuff, maybe I'm, I'm just not into. And so, for a culture that tells me you can be spiritual, maybe that's going to scratch that itch that I have without impressing upon me the need to follow anything. Or be accountable to anything. Here's the problem. That could not be any more foreign to the vision of Jesus who died for our sins. And the one before whom eventually we are all going to stand. And I think of such a simple passage to show that is the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28. We read in verse 16 that the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Make followers. Make people who recognize truth and righteousness and are willing to listen to my teaching. We keep reading. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Teach them to observe. The Bible word for that is doctrine. Jesus is speaking as the one with all authority. And I think you and I, maybe one other verse along these lines in James chapter 1, you and I need to make sure that we don't slip into this modern mindset that religion is a bad word. All that religion means, as I understand the word as it's used in the Bible, is devotion that is outwardly expressed. That's religion. To be religious is to be devoted on the inside and to express that on the outside. 
And if your Bible is open there to James 1, verse 26, for instance, if anyone thinks he is religious, devoted on the inside, and does not bridle his tongue, there's a, a disconnect between the devotion on the inside and the expression on the outside. Well, I'm deceiving my heart, and, and that sort of devotion, that person's religion is worthless. But religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so in the sense that God uses the word to respect the spiritual nature that I've been created with, is to be devoted to him and to express that by following him. That is life the way it was meant to be. I think a lot of people uh, like this idea that I am free. No church tells me what to do. No book tells me what to do. No doctrine. I am free and I can serve God the way I want to. And in saying that, they ran straight into the arms of the devil and they're not free. That's just, it's just a delusion of the devil. And freedom really is found in Jesus Christ. I think we need to get to the concept that we are not physical beings that happen to have a soul. We are spiritual beings that happen to have a physical body. By and large, when we talk about being made in the image of God, we are spiritual beings. So being spiritual is something that is at the heart of who we are. That's who we are. We're spiritual people. But to say, I'm going to be spiritual without any parameters, without anything, really leaves it undefined. My spirit is eventually going to return to the God who gave it. Absolutely. Which means I need to think right now about the spirit he's given. Absolutely. So, okay. I hear all of that, but I'm not happy. I'm not happy in church. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Oh, isn't that the flavor of the month isn't it i'm supposed to be happy you know people leave marriages because i'm no longer happy it's not happy matrimony it's holy matrimony and what god wants you to be is faithful what god wants you to be is holy what god wants you to be is righteous toward him you can never be happy while you're making somebody that you love unhappy I mean, if I, if I did some things and, and totally made my wife unhappy, I couldn't be happy at the moment. You know the old phrase, if mama's not happy, nobody's happy. Well, how, how, can, how can I be happy if I'm displeasing my God? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, we make it our ambition to please God. I think at the heart of this, we need to ask some questions. Why are you not happy in church? It was God who designed singing. Man didn't invent that. God did. It was God who told us to pray, not man. God told us to preach. God told us to fellowship. These are all concepts from heaven, not man thought up. And so when somebody says, I'm not happy in church, that's a faith issue. And we need to look at that. And we need to talk about that. And we need to realize that this is just a par small, small part of your journey with God. What are you doing outside this room? What are you doing tomorrow? What are you doing next week? As we think about living day by day with Jesus. Can I be happy in Jesus? Absolutely. The Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing 
He was forgiven. He was a child of God. You can have that great joy in God. But it begins first by following God the way he wants us to. Be the change you would like to see in the church. Right? I mean, we, we've saying there is room in the kingdom. There is work that we all can do. Don't walk away from the Lord's church. Be the change you would like to see in the church. Well, I have so many friends who love God, but they're not a part of any church. And they're doing great things in the community. How can that be wrong? First of all, we don't determine wrong, God does. It's not what I think, it's what you think. Get your Bible, I'm going I'm to run through some verses with you. I want you to write these verses down if you don't know them. First one's in John chapter 14. He, the, the, there's, there's two passages right beside each other, John 14, John 15. Same numbers, and it's easy to remember. John 14, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Flip the page. Now, chapter 15, verse 14, just the opposite. Easy to remember. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You see that? Now, take your Bible and go with me over to the book of 1 John. 1 John, chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2. Again, let's just run through some of these verses real quickly here. 1 John, chapter 2. Let's look at verse 3 and also verse 5. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. You see that? Then go to chapter 3, look at verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Verse 24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. Over the book of 2 John, verse 9, anyone who goes too far does not abide in the doctrine or the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching is both the Father and the Son. So when somebody says, I love God, but I don't do what the Bible says. No, you're using the wrong word, or you're following the wrong God. If you love God, you're going to do what the Bible says. Over and over and over it says that. There's no way you can get around that. So to say, I worship God, not in any way. I, I, I go out there, and I have a rose garden. It spells G-O-D. Once in a while, I get two of my buddies together. We take our shirts off. We spell G-O-D in our bellies. And we, we have the guitars, we have the cotton candy, we, we worship God, and it is amazing what God loves in us. What does the Bible say? If you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Doesn't matter how many great things you're doing, don't matter what you're doing for the community, doesn't matter the great success that you're having, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There's no getting around that. So when somebody says, I love God, but I don't do this, no, you really don't. You really don't. You're using the wrong word. The word is not love. And we need to see how important that is as we follow and see what God wants us to do. So, next question. Uh, is, it, is it possible to be spiritual and not please God? 
Let's go back to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1. The, the straightforward, simple answer to that, of course, is yes. And, I mean, Scripture is full of examples to show us that, right? Cain was spiritual in a very real sense. I mean, he offered a sacrifice to God in Genesis chapter 4. The problem was with what he offered it, in, in the way that he offered it, okay? He, he was engaged in spiritual activity. The Pharaoh of Exodus was a very spiritual guy in the sense that he had a whole pantheon full of gods and goddesses. And scripture is full of kings and queens who had that sort of thing. Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 12, a king in Israel was a very spiritual man when he built two golden calves and established a priesthood and a day of worship and invited all of Israel to head either to the north or the south and present themselves before these golden calves. Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 18 was a very spiritual woman. I mean, she had hundreds of prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth that ate at her own table. Again, the problem was gods of our own making. We, we talked a little bit about that recently in that Mount Carmel sermon a, a few weeks ago. The allure of idolatry that I can buy into something that isn't going to disturb me, isn't going to come and turn my life upside down and demand my priorities to be reordered. An idol isn't going to demand that you put it first. An idol isn't really going to demand that you make any sort of sacrifices. And I mean, boy, that sounds really good until I call out to the idol and there's nothing. Or I lean on the idol and it breaks. Or I need the idol. And it can't deliver. Or I've devoted myself to the idol for decades and then I reach the end of my life and I realize I've been building everything on sand. Tomorrow, Lord willing, our daily Bible reading takes us into Malachi chapter 1. This is a great answer to the question where in verse 6, God through the prophet says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. I mean, there it is, what we were talking about earlier. Devotion on the inside that's expressed on the outside. A, a son honors his father, not just by saying, I honor you, but by expressing that. We want that in our spouses, right? Our spouses don't simply want us to say, I honor you, and then live in very dishonorable ways. These people knew that. God knew that. And so it, it very naturally leads into the latter part of verse 6. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? I mean, they're serving as priests. And they're 
slaughtering animals that are brought to them and they're, they're devoting themselves to these religious activities. Well, here's the problem. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Well, that's spiritual activity. But it wasn't pleasing to God. He says, that's, that's evil. When you offer those who are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Say that you're devoted to your governor and then act in that sort of way. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Is it possible to be spiritual and not please God? Listen to God in verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. Shut the doors of the temple. Take away the fire from the altar because what you're doing is in vain. And he says, I have no pleasure in you. And when you hear God saying that is vain, I hope that reminds you of what the Son of God said in Matthew 15 of people of his own day. He calls them hypocrites. Is it possible to be spiritual and not please God? Jesus says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Absolutely, it is possible to be spiritual. Absolutely, it is possible to engage in religious expressions and be absolutely unpleasing to God. So to be spiritual and to please God, you got to do what the Bible says. That's just the way you do it. Last question. The Bible seems so old-fashioned. I hear what you're saying, I, I hear the idea of aligning myself, but I live in 2021, the Bible seems so old-fashioned, I live in a high-paced, technologically advanced time, are you telling me I really need to submit myself to this ancient book? It is an old book, no question. But let's turn our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. And let's, let us remind ourselves, let's get ourselves off the high horse. We start talking about technology and how advanced we are. Go back to those Egyptians, how they built those pyramids, how they mummified bodies. Go back to Babylon, where their gardens were called one of the seven wonders of the world. I never hear that term today. I don't hear anybody building something that this is one of the seven wonders of the world. We don't do that. We sometimes think that they, they were cavemen and pulled their women by the hair and like Fred Flintstone type of lifestyles. They were very advanced in their lives. But Hebrews chapter 4 is really the answer to this. The word of God is living, it says. Not dormant. That's why when you read the Bible, sometimes it bothers you. It gives you guilt. It's alive. It's doing things. Sometimes it kicks you in the pants. Man, I need to be doing this more. Sometimes it encourages you. Sometimes it comforts you. It's not, a, it's not a stagnant, dormant piece of wood. It is alive. It does things. It's active. 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What is man's problems today? We could say racism, police problems, this, this, this. Underneath all of that, sin and departure with God. Those are the very subjects addressed by the Bible. Now turn your Bible, if you will, to the book of Ephesians in chapter 4. And so when we think about how relevant the Bible is, it is that bridge that builds that relationship with God. It shows us how people who are wrong can be right in Jesus. It shows how we can have better character, better families, better lives. And so we get to the last two verses of Ephesians 4. Just one place. There's multiple places we could look at. But Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Right there in your margins, you could you could just write in there cable TV news. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like what we hear on the streets today. But watch God's answer, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. These words are over 2,000 years old, but that's the solution. That still works today. When people say the Bible is out of fashion, it's old-fashioned, it's out of touch, no, it's not. It deals with where we are and what we need today. Let's open our Bibles back to John chapter 21. We will offer the Lord's invitation here in just a moment. You know, it's interesting how much we can learn by things that frustrate us. A lot of times, if you're like me, I, I have the, the false idea that I learn from things that are good. I learn from things that... that please me. I, I learn from things that, that line up with the way I think the world ought to be, but that's, that's not always the case. God has taught us to be able to learn from things that are good and things that are not good, things that are fair in our eyes and things that are, are not fair. And so let me ask you, how many times over the last year and a half have you been frustrated as you see someone trying to get this without doing that? Why does it frustrate you when people think they ought to get a paycheck without going to work? Where does that come from? Why does it frustrate you when someone wants to be a citizen of this country and enjoy everything that citizenship in this country has to offer without paying taxes? Why does it frustrate us when we hear in the news that some celebrity's child was able to get into an elite school without passing certain tests. I mean, we could go on and on and on, just very modern, everyday examples. 
it frustrates us when we see people trying to get this without doing that. That just doesn't seem fair or right in our eyes. And I would suggest to you that's exactly what we've been talking about this evening when it comes to the Bible. Many are very interested in God's blessings. I'm just not sure I want to follow him. Many are very interested in inheriting eternal life. I'm just not sure I want to take up my cross now and follow God. It's interesting what sticks with people. I haven't even told Roger this, but in our household, it's, it's been amusing to me and encouraging to me in, in recent weeks. I have heard, I think all three of my girls, and, and Shelly included, at times be frustrated by something that they see in the world, and it just kind of stuck a few weeks ago. They will quote John chapter 21, the very end of verse 23. Roger preached a sermon about this several weeks ago, and, and it stuck with the members of my own household. Do you remember where Jesus told Peter, what is that to you? Follow me in verse 22. We back up to verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them, the one also who had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus has just foretold difficult times that are eventually going to come in Peter's life. And Peter says, well, what about this man? And Jesus says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I want you to think about how extraordinary those last three words really are. Jesus is about to leave. Peter is not going to see Jesus anymore with his physical eyes. He's not going to hear him anymore with his physical ears. He's not going to be able to watch his footprints right in front of him. And yet there is a very powerful way in which Jesus tells this man, you follow me. What that means is, I don't have to see Jesus with my physical eyes. I don't have to hear him with my physical ears. I don't have to literally see him and follow him bodily in order to answer this call. And this is the call of Jesus to all of us. There are things in this world that we can't change. There are things that are going to frustrate you this week. There are things that you're going to see people trying to game the system and, and take advantage. And I want to enjoy this without this. I, I, I want to enjoy the blessings without the cross. I would suggest to you Jesus' answer to us would be exactly his answer right here. What is that to you? You follow me. You honor me in your heart. You express that by your actions. Maybe you're ready to begin that journey right here, right now, this 
very evening. Maybe you're ready to acknowledge you believe Jesus is the Son of God. You're ready to turn away from your sins. You're ready to be baptized in His name for the forgiveness of your sins. You want to be bound for heaven. Maybe you haven't been doing that. Maybe you've been living that hypocritical lifestyle that we heard Jesus condemn just a little while ago and you know that you could use some help. In God's amazing wisdom, He has instituted the church. You need the church. I need the church. And if you would like this assembly of people to pray with you and for you right here, right now, we would love to do that. This invitation song is to encourage you. And if we can be of any help, would you let us know how by coming to the front while we stand and sing together?